Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School Podcast for the first Sunday in Lent, February 26, 2023. And today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Now, every year on the first Sunday of Lent, we hear about the temptation of Jesus from one of the synoptic gospels from Matthew, Mark, or Luke. This text is from Matthew, and this will be the gospel reading for next year. We'll hear it from Luke this time around. But in the meantime, an important thing to remember with the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is that Matthew chapter 4 comes right after Matthew chapter 3, of course. But more, more specifically, the temptation of Jesus comes right after the baptism of Jesus at the end of Matthew chapter 3. And if you remember, when Jesus is baptized, he's baptized with all those sinners. He's taking the place of sinners. He's identifying with them and saying, I'm going in your place to the cross to die your death for your sin. And when Jesus is baptized... The heavens open, God the Father speaks and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. When the Father says of Jesus, This is my beloved Son, he's doing more than declaring that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. God the Father is also referring to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, which reads, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So remember, God the Father considers the whole nation of Israel to be his son, his child, in Hosea chapter 11. And... When he is baptized, Jesus is taking place of all of God's people to bear their sins to the cross. So when God the Father at Jesus' baptism says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, he's not just saying, This is my incarnate only begotten Son. He's also saying, Now Jesus is all of my people, my Israel, represented by one guy by Jesus. So as Jesus goes to the cross, he goes as as God's beloved son, representing all of his people to die for their sins. That takes place just before the temptation in the wilderness. So let's start reading through Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. And it begins, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. All right, so what happens right after the Father speaks and the Holy Spirit descends upon the Son who's being baptized? The Holy Spirit leads the Son at the Father's bidding into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
Now remember, Jesus is representing all of Israel in one person to die for their sins. So as God once led Israel, his son, into the wilderness out of Egypt on the way to the promised land, now the Holy Spirit leads Jesus, God's son, into the wilderness to be tempted in the place of Israel. And remember, Old Testament Israel was adopted or baptized, if you will, in the Red Sea. That's what 1 Corinthians 10 verse 2 says. So Old Testament Israel, God's son, was baptized in the Red Sea and led into the wilderness. And now Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, taking their place, and is led into the wilderness on their behalf. And Jesus' time in the wilderness is important for this reason. In the wilderness, God tested Israel. He didn't test them in order to provoke them to sin. He tested them so that they might acknowledge him, might acknowledge his commandments, might acknowledge his promises. He tested them so that they might learn to trust in him and his promises all the more. So, for instance, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, Moses saying to Israel, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these forty years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what, what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. All right, so there Moses says that God tested Israel so that they might know what was in their own hearts and might know um, the Lord's faithfulness to them. In other words, God tested them with with law and gospel, if you will. They examined themselves so that they might repent of their sin and trust in his promises all the more. You know, however, that's not how it went. Time and time again, Israel in the wilderness doubted God, grumbled against him, rebelled against him. In other words, they, they failed the test time and time again. Because they failed when God tested them for good, and because when they failed, they gave in to the temptations of the devil, now Jesus, the beloved Son of God, has gone into the wilderness to be actively tempted by the devil. Where God tested Israel for their good, the devil now actively tempts Jesus to provoke him to sin. And this temptation takes place in three parts. The first temptation is verses 2 through 4 of our reading, and we read, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights, and that corresponds to Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. 
Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and so he's hungry. Remember, while Israel was in the wilderness, at times they grew thirsty and they complained against God. They grumbled they didn't have enough to eat, and so God began to rain down manna from heaven every day and provided quail now and then in the camp. Jesus fasts instead. He denies himself all food for 40 days and 40 nights and still obeys his father perfectly without any grumbling or doubt during his temptation. But while Jesus fasts, the tempter, another name for the devil, comes to him and says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now remember, just a few verses back in Matthew chapter 3, God the Father said, This is my beloved Son. So the devil comes to him and says, Well, if you are in fact the Son of God, the beloved Son, then use your power. Satisfy your hunger. Turn these stones into loaves of bread. So the first temptation of Jesus by Satan is to use his power to serve himself, to use his power to relieve his own suffering. Now, Jesus can work miracles with bread. He's going to use his power to feed 5,000 with loaves and fish at one miracle. He's going to use his power to feed 4,000 with loaves and fish at another miracle. So he will use his power as a son of God to serve those around him. But he won't use his power to relieve his own suffering. Now, does it matter here if Jesus turns loaves into bread? Well, By denying himself relief, by using his power now, Jesus is giving us a foreshadowing of the cross. There he could certainly use his power to relieve his suffering. If he wanted to, he could come down from the cross. But instead, for your sake and mine, Jesus does not use his power to relieve himself and escape the crucifixion. Instead, Jesus uses his power to die in our place, to defeat sin, death, and devil, that we might have eternal life. So the devil tempts Jesus to relieve his suffering and says, hey, if you are the son of God, why not? And Jesus responds with that verse we just heard from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Remember, God tested the Israelites in the wilderness for their good, and then Moses said, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus, tempted by the devil, responds with this word and says to the devil, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, God in his word has proclaimed that the Messiah would come. God in his word has proclaimed that the Messiah would suffer in order to save his people. And God has proclaimed at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son. So rather than do what the devil wants him to do, Jesus instead stays with the father's word 
and continues to fast. So that temptation fails. The devil moves on to the next one. So the second temptation is in verses 5 through 7. And we read, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. All right, so the devil takes Jesus to to Jerusalem, either sets him on the temple itself or perhaps the wall around the temple. And he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. And then he quotes two different Bible verses. The devil is using scripture to tempt Jesus. So he says, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, The devil pulls a trick here. When he uses that word and, it sounds like he's gathering two verses from two different places in the Old Testament to make his case. But he's not. He's quoting two verses in a row, Psalm 9.11 and Psalm 9.12, but he's leaving out part of verse 11. So the devil quotes and says, he will command his angels concerning you, but he leaves out the second part. So the whole verse reads, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Now the import of the second half of that verse is this. Those who are guarded by God are those who are walking in the ways of the Lord those who are following his commandments, those who are clinging to his his word, his law, and his gospel, and thus they are under God's care because they they are repentant and trusting that his will is best. When the devil drops out the second half of verse 11, he's saying, trying to persuade Jesus, you can do whatever you want because you're the son of God and he's promised to take care of you no matter what. Now, this is kind of like the, uh, the prosperity preacher who says, hey, the Bible says, whatever you ask in my name, God will give you. So just tack the name of Jesus onto any prayer. And if you have enough faith, God will give you whatever you want. And that, of course, is a distortion of scripture. When Jesus says, ask anything in my name, he says, ask anything according to my word, according to my will. And that's the part that the devil drops off here in this temptation. Hey, no matter what, the angels will catch you. You don't have to be obeying God or submitting to his will or following his word. God promises to save you no matter what. Now, we don't know how well the devil knows Jesus and what he knows. We know that he knows that Jesus is the Messiah enough that he's trying to knock Jesus off course by tempting him. And we know that the devil knows that Jesus is casting out demons left and right, so he's an enemy. We don't know, though, how much Satan knows about what Jesus knows of Scripture, but at any rate, clearly, Jesus doesn't and isn't going to fall for this one. 
So rather than throw himself off the temple because the devil wants him to, Jesus quotes to him with, uh, from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, rather than do whatever you want and expect God to cover it, the one who follows God submits to his will. Now, this, this is important because in the first temptation, remember, um, when Israel hungered in the wilderness, they grumbled against God. When Jesus hungers in the wilderness, he continues to stay hungry to fulfill God's will. With this second temptation, we remember that when Israel was in the wilderness at Massa and Meribah, they, uh, they grew thirsty, and we read in Exodus 17, verse 7, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Will the Lord help us or not? Will the Lord save us or not? So where the people put God to the test and said, are you going to help us? Jesus instead says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, and continues to go about God's plan, even if it means harm to himself. So the first temptation assumes that Jesus has miraculous power and then questions how he'll use that power. Will he use it to serve and save himself or not? And the second temptation assumes that Jesus is God's son and then questions if he will trust God's promise of protection. And Jesus does trust his father's promise of protection, but he trusts his father's promised protection according to his father's word, not according to the devil's misquote of scripture. All right, two temptations down, one to go. And so we read uh, in, the, in verses 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. All right, so in the third temptation, the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And, and the high mountain, I suppose, gives him a view of all the kingdoms, but it might also be um, the, the devil aping God in the Old Testament. So as God would, would meet his people on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, um, Mount Carmel, um, so, so the devil takes Jesus to... Uh, to um, a very high mountain to impress the stuffing out of him to say, hey, I can give you all this if you just worship me. Now, the kingdoms of the world are not the devils to give to anybody. So you wonder why the devil thinks this will work. And it might just well be that the devil's crazy. Don't expect evil to make sense. For some reason, the devil appears to think that this might work. 
He wants Jesus to turn from following his father, from submitting to his father, and instead he wants Jesus to worship him. And if there's ever a false god, that would be the evil one. Now you can see why this temptation comes into play. God brings Old Testament Israel into the wilderness. He brings his, his Israel, his son, into the wilderness. He delivers them from Pharaoh and his armies. They cross the Red Sea. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He provides for their needs. He welcomes Moses to the top of the mountain to give Moses and the people his law. And meanwhile, what do the people do down below? They turn and they worship a golden calf that they have Aaron make out of gold that they give him. So they know this metal calf is a manufactured thing on their behalf, and they call it their God. So, where Old Testament Israel turned to false gods all over the place in the wilderness... When Jesus is tempted to a false god in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, he refuses to worship it. Even though Jesus is going to the cross to suffer God's wrath for our sins, even though going a different route would relieve him of great suffering, instead, Jesus submits to the will of the Father and refuses this temptation of the devil. So in the third temptation, the assumption by Satan is that he can get Jesus to turn and to worship other gods. But a son only has one father. And Jesus knows he is the father's beloved son. And so he refuses to turn and worship other gods. This time around, Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 6 verse 13 You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Which is a different way to phrase the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, note, by the way, that each time Jesus has responded to the devil, he's responded with passages out of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 Deuteronomy 6.16, and now Deuteronomy 6.13. Why is that significant? Because all the texts are from Deuteronomy, and that name of the book, Deuteronomy, means the second giving of the law. In Deuteronomy, Moses speaks the law of God to Israel for a second time just before just before Moses dies and the people enter the promised land. So the people have endured 40 years in the wilderness. They've made a total mess of following God for 40 years in the wilderness. And despite all of their their rebellion and disobedience, they're about to enter the promised land across the Jordan. Jesus has just endured 40 days in the wilderness Remember, taking Israel's place, he's endured 40 days in the wilderness without food, and now he's about to recross the Jordan and re-enter the promised land, if you will, as he goes about his ministry to save his people. So once again, Jesus is taking place 
of Old Testament Israel. He's the obedient son of God. And as Moses instructed the people of Israel in Deuteronomy just before they crossed the Jordan, so Jesus instructs the devil out of the book of Deuteronomy just before he returns to, uh, to Judea and begins his ministry. Our passage then ends with, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, I I love this closure to the temptation because, remember the second temptation, the devil promised to Jesus, you know, he will command his angels concerning you, and you can do whatever you want. And, and, And Jesus refuses that temptation. He continues to submit to his father's will. He continues to go about the ways of his father. And what happens when the devil leaves? The angels come to care for Jesus. So that quote, that text from Psalm 9, 11, and 12 is fulfilled according to God's plan, according to God's will, not according to the devil's twisted, perverted interpretation of the psalm. Um, So even before Jesus leaves the wilderness, the devil is already proved to be wrong. So that's our text Jesus is tempted in three different ways in the wilderness, and there are different ways to look at the temptation of Jesus and the relationship of these temptations, Um, and and they, they don't really contradict each other. So, for instance, keeping the, the, uh, the idea of Old Testament Israel as the son of God in mind. Remember again, Old Testament Israel, when they got hungry, they grumbled. When they got thirsty, they tested God and they turned to false gods. Jesus, in their place in the wilderness, he hungers, but he doesn't grumble. He trusts God. When he's tested by the devil, he refuses to test God. When he's tempted to turn to false gods, he continues to do the will of his father. So everywhere that Israel failed, and every law that Old Testament Israel broke, Jesus keeps it to stay righteous and to go to the cross for them. So that looks at the temptation with regard to Old Testament Israel. You can also look at the temptation with regard to Adam and the fall into sin. Adam was in paradise. Jesus gets the wilderness. Adam was tempted to eat forbidden food, and he did. He gave in to temptation. Jesus is tempted to eat food that the devil um, proposes, and he refuses the devil's temptation. To Adam and Eve, um, the devil says, did God really say, you will not surely die? And when the devil misquotes scripture to Jesus, Jesus doesn't fall for it like Adam and Eve did. Satan said, if you follow me, you will be like God, knowing good and evil, and Adam and Eve fell for it. When Satan promises power and glory to Jesus, who is, in fact, the Son of God, Jesus refuses the temptation. So everywhere that Adam failed, Jesus keeps similar temptations, or rather he resists similar temptations perfectly. So each time Jesus resists the devil, it's an act of obedience. And this is part of his active obedience, his keeping of the law for us. 
And because Jesus keeps the law for us, there are two great blessings for us. First, because Jesus keeps the law perfectly, he can be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And because Jesus keeps the law perfectly, he gives us the credit for his perfect obedience. So because we are forgiven, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our disobedience. Instead, he sees Jesus' perfect obedience because Jesus gives us the credit for us. Now, the ancient church and, and the reformers at the time of the Reformation looked at, at these temptations and noted that these are, these are some of the deadly sins. The first is the temptation to gluttony. The second is the temptation to pride. The third is the temptation to greed. And Jesus resists them all to continue to submit to his Father sinlessly. One other interpretation is a... Uh, a scholar named Holwerda in, 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 in a commentary says that the first temptation is how the true child of God must live, trusting in God's promises. The second temptation is to see whether or not God is faithful, and he is. And the third temptation is, is to um, attempt to achieve control of the world by, by following Satan, which will never work for Christ crucified and risen again. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the God of gods. He rules over all things for our good. What is the great takeaway of the temptation of Jesus for us? It is not that Jesus gives us an example of how to resist temptation. Too often, readers read this or preachers preach this so that the interpretation is that Jesus sets the example so that since Jesus could resist the devil, you can too. Since Jesus quoted scripture against the devil, as long as you know the right verses to quote against Satan, you can resist him too. But that's not the case. First and foremost, the temptation demonstrates to us that Jesus is the sinless Son of God who is willing to endure hardship and suffering to save us. We marvel that were we so easily given to temptation, Jesus keeps the law and resists temptation as part of his act of obedience for our salvation. And I might add here something that, that C.S. Lewis once said, and that is, the one who resists temptation more knows temptation more. Because the one who gives in to temptation right away doesn't have to be tempted very much, so he doesn't know temptation very well. The one who resists temptation keeps on getting hammered with temptation, so he knows temptation more. Therefore, who knows temptation most of all? The one who resists it the best. And that would be Jesus. We can't say Jesus doesn't know what we're going through. Instead, Jesus knows what we're going through better than we do because he knows temptation better than we do. Yet he remained without sin to be our Savior. Now, another takeaway we can get from the temptation of Jesus is this. We should recognize that as the devil attacked and tempted Jesus, 
so he will turn and attack us as Jesus' followers, as, as children of God. We read in Revelation that when Satan is cast out of heaven, he turns his wrath upon the church and says he can't defeat the church. He goes after individual believers again, uh, instead. So every attack by Satan, every temptation is an assault on your identity as a Christian. It's an assault as, uh, on how you are supposed to be living as a child of God. And as each temptation hooks in, it's designed to lead you away from the certainty of God's love and from his promises so that you believe you're lost and away and cut off from Christ once again. That's why as Christians, we do our best to resist temptation. But more than that, when we give in to temptation, we we quickly repent. We confess our sins to our Lord, and we rejoice that Christ, who resists the devil perfectly, went to the cross and died for all of our sins. And it's in that forgiveness he gives us that he also gives us strength to resist temptation, to resist the devil. So cling to the promises of Christ, continue to feed upon his word that you might know his word that much more, and rejoice that Christ has defeated the devil for you. Okay, with that, we conclude our podcast on Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. God's blessings to you as you teach this to others, if you are in fact teaching this to others or otherwise, um, God grants you every good gift as you meditate upon this text further for yourself. And until next time, the Lord order your days and your deeds in his peace. In the name of Jesus, amen.